Well, amen. Amen. Good evening, LCM. Good evening. We have before us our last two sessions on the book of Daniel. Tonight we'll be covering the text from Daniel 11:21 all the way to the end of the book. We really do want to thank you guys for going on this journey with us. It's uh, it's been a thought-provoking and exhilarating experience so far for us. Now, you need to know that we didn't and still don't have everything figured out. The revelation that is set forth in the book of Daniel is the kind of thing that a man gains further insight into for the rest of his life. I happen to have been teaching through the Bible on a specified night of the week, book by book, for about 30 years. One of the most sobering exercises for me personally is to revisit notes, recordings, and videos from previous years. (laughs) Two things happen. I marvel at what has been proven to be correct over time, and I grieve over the errors that I made in my previous interpretations that have proven to definitely be wrong over time. The whole process evokes a mixture of humility and confidence that every Christian needs to acquire in precious proportion to one another. For us, we must each be cognizant of the attitude that Paul expressed in the Corinthian church. This is 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Wow. But whoever loves God is known by God. Amen. So whatever we think we know, we do not yet know as we ought to know. We all have to grapple with that. The answer is not to retreat, though, from these studies and leave them to the domain of prophecy teachers, but rather to humbly approach the word as a son loved by the father and be confident that he will progressively reveal his mysteries to you throughout your lifetime. This requires patience to wait when you are not yet certain. And it also requires humility to remain pliable in your current understanding that may just need to be significantly adjusted. We should all be engaged in the lifetime pursuit of knowing our Father and His plan better every day. When you come to the place where a significant adjustment in your understanding needs to be made, well, that's because your Father is rewarding your efforts with more insight into Him More insight into his plan, and that is always a good thing. Amen. When Paul was encouraging his son Timothy, look at the specific wording in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. Notice that it said, do your best. All men must wrestle with the word of God. We are to give our best efforts in this endeavor. Amen? Amen. Each of us should make every effort to correctly handle the word of truth. Now, one of the many things that it means to correctly handle the word of truth 
is that you are honest about what the Lord has made you sure of and honest about what you do not yet know. Each of us is developing a track record. That track record will show whether or not we did our best to wrestle with the word and present our findings, or we just take a cheap and easy road of stealing, borrowing, and plagiarizing things that we did not personally wrestle with. Now, there is nothing wrong with being aided by great teachers, but there is something wrong with not searching in an Acts 17 Berean kind of way to personally go on a quest for affirmation of the things that we learn. When we don't do this, the result is an echo chamber of errors that compounds in every generation and propagates damaging deviations from the plan of God. So true. Saints, our goal in this house is that each of us would be described like the CJB version describes appellants. So this is Romans 16.10 in the CJB. Greetings to appellants whose trust in the Messiah has been tested and proved. As if we genuinely trust Messiah, then we can approach the word with honesty and humility, letting the mysteries unveil themselves over time, and our track record will be evident to all that follow our lives closely. This attitude allows you to sincerely rejoice when corrections and adjustments are made to your teaching, because it means that you are growing as a Christian, and that progress becomes evident to all. Saints, we are proud of the discoveries that we feel like the Father has rewarded this team with. Your scrutiny and diligent study will either validate the treasures that we think we found, or they may not stand the test. In either case, we are all benefited by this process, and it was always meant to be reciprocal between us. Look, let's pray for progress in our studies as a community. Let's pray for our loving Father to help us understand His plan. Because we're serious about it being reciprocal. Uh, David, why don't you pray for us? in Daniel now where concepts laid down early in the book should be able to come to life in whole new ways. Uh, We're going to lightly review so that the thematic flow from the last 11 weeks is maintained and then we're going to move straight into Daniel 11.21. So some of the next few slides you will have seen before but we're going to build on them tonight and so it's important that you take a second or third or fourth Look at them. The first is called the organization of the book of Daniel. And uh, what is so important about this is that you draw your attention to the two classifications here. The blue box that has to do with the lives of the men 
and the red box that has to do with the revelations. The first thing that you should notice about this slide is that the items in the blue box are events in the lives of Jewish men in the book of Daniel. While the book is not in chronological order, these events are in chronological order with each other. Chapters 1 through 6 flow as the story of the deeds of the men who receive the revelations in the second half of the book. So when you're reading on the screen, distinctiveness of the faithful Jews in Babylon, that's how the book opens. And then we move to a Babylonian king's four-empire dream, but it has Jewish interpretation. Then you see faithful Jews facing the fiery furnace of tribulation under empire number one, Babylon. Then you move to the results of the faithful Jewish witness. In other words, you get to see Nebuchadnezzar saved despite all that has happened. In the fifth chapter, you see a Jewish transition from the first empire, Babylon, to the second empire, Medo-Persia, and the emphasis is this was done by God's hand. In the sixth chapter, you again see faithful Jews facing the lions of tribulation under empire number two, which of course is Medo-Persia. The second thing that you should notice about this slide is that the items in the red box are revelations in the lives of the Jewish men in the book of Daniel. Again, these events are not in chronological order as far as the whole book is concerned, but they are in chronological order with each other, and their sequence is meant to do something. It's meant to show you the unity of these visions. So when you're reading the dream of the four beastly empires that oppresses the Jews in chapter 7, that is very much meant to be connected, and it's arranged to be connected, to chapter 8, the vision from Empire 2 to 3 and the details of the transition from 3 to 4 and the 4th Empire's activities. You're supposed to make those connections. In chapter 9, you see Jewish repentance and specific details of the 4th Empire and Jewish redemption is forecasted. In the 4th section, the chapters 10 through 12 where we are tonight, not only do you have the same four empires, but there's a zoomed-in view of the transition from the third to the fourth empire and the activities of the fourth empire culminating in Jewish redemption. What this really means is that the book of Daniel was arranged so that you would know the character of the men, the Jewish men, that received these revelations prior to hearing about the revelations. Wouldn't it be good if you knew the character of the person teaching you? Yeah. yeah, that's why teaching occurs in the local church primarily. Additionally, the revelations are grouped together so that you recognize that they comprise one contiguous message with the same repeating themes. So let's take a look at this slide on the screen. We're going to talk a little bit about the continuity and repeating theme patterns in the entire book of Daniel. So as you're looking at this slide, notice that you have learned that the Jewish people would be subjected to four major Gentile empires that would all, say all, all, they would all rule the Middle East, including Babylon, which is where the vision started in Daniel 2. 
You have also learned that the text itself identifies Babylonia, Medo-Persia, Yavan, or Greece, but that the fourth empire is consistently unnamed in the scripture. You have also learned that the fourth empire will be led by a little or small horn that has a great big blasphemous mouth. And you've also learned that something from the third empire, which is Greece, carries over into the fourth unnamed empire, and that is illustrated in the element of bronze. That is the only element that carries over between kingdoms in the illustrations. Now, one of the newest developments is that we, we have come to understand that a transition is described in Daniel between the third empire of Greece and the fourth empire that will rule. This transition begins with the death of Alexander the Great. As Justin just said, the transition begins with Alexander the Great's death. Look at this next slide. Four prominent horns represent four kingdoms and are not his empire. So Daniel 8.22, the four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power as his nation. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 4 says, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted. Sounds like a transition, doesn't it? And given to others. The transition from the empire of Greece to the smaller regional kingdoms is displayed in both Daniel 8 and Daniel 11. In both of these chapters, Alexander's empire is contrasted with the lesser kingdoms by saying that they will not have the same power. In Daniel 11, the text is specific, saying that Alexander's empire is broken up. Alexander's empire is parceled out. Furthermore, his empire is uprooted. The result is for disconnected, unaffiliated, separate kingdoms that serve to point us to the area and nature of the rise of the little horn or the small horn that will eventually lead the fourth Gentile empire. Now you need to remember the four horns following Alexander did not rule collectively as a nation. They did not rule Babylon. Only the Seleucids <coughs> did. They fought against one another. They allied with other nations against one another. They should not be seen as a singular empire. Right. The Bible itself refers to them as four separate kingdoms. Undoubtedly, the Lord has shown this to other men in history. What makes this so significant to us is that we did not read this anywhere else. We feel like this is a mystery that the Lord helped us to understand, and in our opinion, it is essential to understanding the continuity of the revelations in the book of Daniel. Amen. Over time, you will have to judge the validity of that opinion for yourselves. But it's precious to us. Amen. So saints, the result of this revelation is displayed on this next slide that you've seen before. But it becomes increasingly important as we continue. It's at the top right-hand corner of your screen. 
each of these successive kingdoms are decreasing in their value, but they're also simultaneously increasing in strength. We began with the first kingdom that was Babylonia, the head of gold in Daniel 2. It was given to Nebuchadnezzar. Then by the time we get to Daniel 7, it's a winged lion. Our second kingdom, Medo-Persia, the chest and arms of silver in Daniel 2. Then a lopsided bear in Daniel 7, and a ram with lopsided horns in Daniel 8. Then at our third kingdom, Greece, the belly and thighs of bronze in Daniel 2 which is described as a winged leopard that has four heads in Daniel 7 and a super goat with a single horn in Daniel 8. So you guys learned that Alexander, while he is alive with four generals under his command, one beast, then he dies and there's a transition period. We have four horns that become four separate kingdoms once their unifying leader is gone out of the way. From one of those four horns, out of only one of them, a small horn arises that is the fourth kingdom. It will have legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, as Daniel 2 described it. It will be an indescribable beast with iron teeth and bronze claws, as Daniel 7 put it. And then a little horn that rises out of ten other horns, defeating or uprooting three of them in Daniel 7. Since the reason that we have deliberately and repetitively gone over this slide is that it is an entirely new view of the chapters in Daniel. This approach avoids unnecessary segmentation of the book and reveals that every revelatory chapter is aimed at the same description with ever-increasing clarity. Since all of these chapters tell the same story, here's a slide that summarizes a few of the details that you pick up that are somewhat unique in each successive chapter. Of course, it's titled Unity of the Visions and Message of Daniel. Chapter 2 really serves to give you the overall scope and the broadest sense of the four Gentile empires. Where chapter 7 does that, but also introduces the Bar Enosh that brings the four Gentile empires to an end. In chapter 8, you have the same four Gentile empires but you're given the region, nature, and activities of the small horn ruling the four, fourth Gentile empire, and you start to get insight into the transition period. When you move to chapter 9, all of those same themes are reiterated, but you actually pick up a timeline to measure where you're at in the process of Israel's redemption. By the time you get to chapters 10 and 11... You're given more detail and insight into kingdoms 2, 3, and 4 than at any other place, but you're also given insight into the transition from the 3rd to the 4th kingdom. And you get a real snapshot, you're going to see it tonight, of the belief and the practice of the coming Antichrist, small or little horn. Chapter 12, it is the culmination of the book. And it is the final redemption of Israel and the demise of the four Gentile empires. You can see that it is following one continuous flow. The original Hebrew audience, if you're engaging with this as they would have, they probably would not describe any of these chapters as being about the four Gentile empires. They would rather see the ultimate aim of the whole book 
as the redemption of Israel. That's how they would see it. And it's how you should see it too. The point of giving you all of the information about the Gentile empires is to get to the final redemption of Israel. We're learning what you must go through to get to that redemption. Mm. The sentiment that the overall book presents is similar to Paul and Barnabas preaching in Antioch, Syria. Think about that name for a minute. Because it's ironic, it's named for the Seleucid kings that are the transitionary period to the fourth kingdom. And Justin's going to read to you what they preached in the, that city and that region. All right, so this is Acts 14, 21 through 22. Are you guys ready for this? Yeah. All right, verse 21. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number, number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, it's a beautiful city, and Antioch, verse 22, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Why would they say that? Well, when most Christians read this, they think that the crucifixion of Jesus is the only kind of hardship that is being referenced. The truth is that Barnabas and Paul probably understood this concept from Daniel. Daniel reveals that the Jewish people and those aligned or grafted into their redemptive plan will have to go through many hardships to arrive at the kingdom of God. By the way, the whole book of Revelation is also dedicated to that truth, but the themes were vividly displayed in Daniel before Revelation was ever written. Now, there are so many popular misconceptions about the expectations of the so-called end times that we wanted to review this slide with you. Somebody say definitely not. Definitely not. Definitely not a sign of the end. So Matthew 24, verses 5 and 6 say, For many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Come on. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So when asked about the end, Jesus specifically said these things are not the signs of the end. The purpose of mentioning wars and rumors of wars is to describe the climate prior to the end, right? The actual trigger is a covenant of peace, followed by Matthew 24, verse 15. Listen to it. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. (laughs) The abomination that causes desolation, it is the sign of the end. So every time we have an earthquake, Every time there's a pandemic, Uh every time there's a new microchip that comes out and everybody loses it, right? The uneducated Christian world, they run around proclaiming, these are the signs of the end, we're in the end times. No, the truth is is that these are the very things that the word says are non-signs. They're not signs. The actual sign is the abomination of desolation that Daniel describes in four chapters in the book of Daniel. All right, let's look at the words of Jesus again. This is Matthew 24, 15. 
So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. Let him understand. Jesus was not referring to Antiochus Epiphanes since that was in the historic past. Jesus was referring to the whole context of the scroll of Daniel without chapter breaks or divisions. This is because the visions all have the same unified outcome. Now, in preparation for these studies, we went back and forth through the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which covers the interactions of the Seleucids and the Jews. We did that because prior to this study, we thought that huge portions of Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11 were primary, primarily focused on the history of, that the Maccabees covers. So guys, while that was a beneficial study for us... It was. To, to be fair, we've been studying the Maccabees for years and have gone over it several times over the last couple months. It was quite misdirected. Now, we want to show you an example of something that is from Matthew 24 and 1 Maccabees. Can you guys see that on the screen? Yeah. You've never seen this before, so plug in. So I'm going to read to you Matthew 24, 15, and 16 this time. Just listen. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation was spoken of through the prophet Daniel. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What are they going to do? Flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. Now, if you've ever wondered where this was quoted from and searched in your Bible and were unable to find it, listen to the next section. 1 Maccabees 2, 24-28 And Mattathiah saw and grew zealous, and his insides trembled, and rage rose from judgment. And rushing over, he killed him upon the altar. And the man from the king who had forced him to sacrifice, he killed at that moment and tore down the altar. And he was zealous for the law, like Phinehas did to Zimri, son of Shalom. And Mattathiah shouted in the city with a great voice, saying, Everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant, come out after me. And he and his sons fled into the mountains. What'd they do? And they abandoned everything. Guys, so catch this in the red box with me. When speaking of a future event, Jesus quoted both Daniel and the Maccabees. He did that to ensure that you would not misunderstand he referenced the historical past, both in the Bible and in a historical text, and then pointed you towards the future. The Seleucids and Antiochus did not fulfill Daniel's prediction, as it's a shadow in time. Now, in case all of this is so new to you that you're not following us, the Maccabees, they cover much of the historical interactions between one of the four transitionary kings that came up after Greece fell. The predominant history deals with the Seleucid kings and Antiochus Epiphanes is one of those kings. They are oppressive to Israel and they promote the abandonment of the law and abominable sacrifices. Now the excerpt that we just read is after an inappropriate sacrifice is made and the Jewish leader, Mattathias, kills the individual, then tells everyone to flee to the mountains without taking anything, wow. abandoned it. Wow. So Jesus is affirming that these events described in Daniel have not been fulfilled in history, but are in the future. But it is also using the same wording as a 
near. Somebody say near. Near. Near historic fulfillment. So that you would understand they were foreshadowings of things to come on a grander and greater scale. Is that new to you? It's not new to us. We've been working on the Maccabees for a long time. We thought it was actually the key to understanding Daniel 8 and 11. We were wrong. It's it's kind of like a non-sign. They did not do the things that the book of Daniel portrays. They simply did some of the things that Daniel portrays. The truth is, is that the book of Daniel predicted desolations, plural. And it, and it, it predicts it many times. But it always points us forward to an ultimate abomination at the end of time. So you'll probably remember this slide. We titled it Desolations and underlined the S so you couldn't miss it. And the abomination that causes desolation. These are just excerpts from the book of Daniel. There have been many historic desolations of Jerusalem and the temple. In Daniel 9.2, you see the desolation of Jerusalem. In Daniel 9.17, you see the desolation of the sanctuary. In Daniel 9.26b, you, you see desolations, plural, until the end. The specific wording of that verse is, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. And desolations, plural, have been decreed. So, in Daniel, there is a unique feature where desolations are forecasted, but ultimately it always points to a specific desolation, generally referred to as the abomination that causes desolation. So, whether it's the temple or Jerusalem... In Daniel's day, it had already been desolated. Daniel 9, he's told that more desolations would come, and yet in four chapters, the book mentions a specific desolation. Justin's going to show you that. All right, so if you see this slide, you're going to see this slide, you're going to remember this is about a specific desolation, and you can see the aspects of it mentioned in Daniel. Our first point that we mention here is that the final abomination that causes desolation is consistently displayed in the fourth empire and is a unique trigger in that aspect. When you see it in the book of Daniel, it is a triggering event and it is consistently displayed in the fourth empire, not the third, not any other empire, the fourth. Daniel 8.13 says the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. 9.27, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. 11.31, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. You catch that? The the? 12.11, from, that, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. So this abomination that causes desolation will occur under the fourth Gentile beastly empire to dominate the biblical world, including the territories of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. So Daniel 9 helped us understand that there was a final seven years of human history in which these things would happen. 
You will remember this slide. This is such a fun slide here. 70 weeks of years, which means a total of 490 years. Now, these years are not consecutive, but they are in three periods, and you can see that on the screen. Heptad A, Heptad B, where the Gentile beastly empires are ruling, and then Heptad C, where you have the fourth empire that is not named in the word of God. So Heptad A and Heptad B, you have at the beginning of Heptad A, 483 years from that decree would be the triumphal entry, which is the end of Heptad B. So the beginning of Heptad A is the decree, the end of Heptad B is 483 years later with the triumphal entry. Then at the end of Heptad B, you have a break in time until a seven-year covenant is made. And that's where we have the beginning of Heptad C. The emphasis is on the last seven years. Yep. If you look at our slide, you can see the bottom box. These are the things that happen in the final seven years. The Antichrist will confirm a covenant. In the middle, which is a period of 42 months, or 1,260 days, or three and a half years, the Antichrist will break that covenant. The Antichrist will put an end to sacrifice and offering. He will set up an abomination that causes desolation. And the end decreed will be poured out on him. So during Heptad C, everything in that box is going to happen in that final seven years. This could not be a historical event in our past for many reasons. But chief among them is that the completion of all 70 weeks of years will bring about the following thing. So at the completion of the 77s, the accomplishments of it are, one, finished transgression, the end of willful rebellion, into sin or sinful conduct, the atonement for wickedness, the liability or guilt, everlasting righteousness, everlasting. vision will be sealed up, prophecy will be sealed up, and there'll be anointing of the most holy. Now, if we had to show only one slide to summarize what the book of Daniel is ultimately about, it would be the accomplishment of the 70 weeks. Yeah, amen. That's what it produces. Everything else is describing the hardships and tribulations necessary to accomplish this for Israel and those grafted into Israel's redemptive plan. Guys, with that in mind, now we're going to touch on what has already happened in Daniel 11, verse 1 through 20, so that we can get to our text together this evening with it in mind. So you were told that four more Persian kings would arise. This next slide on the screen should be familiar. The four kings, Cambyses, Pseudosmyrtus, Darius, Hestapes, Xerxes, who was during Esther's time. We were told that after them, Alexander would rise, and Daniel 11 calls him a mighty king. Mighty king. <laughs> yeah. Mighty king with a... Mighty king. That? Mighty king. <laughs> Daniel 11 through 11.20 forecast a 160-year period of history and did so 213 years before it ever began. 
The period in history is an amalgamation of predictions regarding six Ptolemaic rulers and eight Seleucid rulers. Now remember, we summarized them on a chart for you. We're clearly not going to read this chart. You have pictures of it. And honestly, we think it's interesting in the, in the sense that the predictions uh, seem to come about and most people seem to agree on that. Notice on the chart that we highlighted the interactions of Antiochus Epiphanes and Ptolemy the sixth Philometer. The reason that we did that is because this is the place where um, it becomes suspect to us. Uh, we wanted tonight's text to draw into question for you the extent to which we're speaking about a Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes, or we're speaking about the coming Antichrist. Yeah. It's very similar to Daniel 8. Remember that we believe the Seleucids serve as a transition kingdom between the Third and the Fourth Empire. That would mean that we expect the coming Fourth Empire and its little or small horn to rise out of the region on this slide and from an ethnic group within the region on that slide. We want to be extremely forthcoming as we get into this chapter. So we've prepared one last slide for you so you will know what to expect and what you're going to encounter this evening in our teaching. Does that sound like a fair deal? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is what modern traditional views hold. And we're just going to tell you where our issues are with them up front. All right. So the modern traditional views place Daniel 11.2, speaking about the Medo-Persian kings. Then, traditionally, <laughs> Daniel 11.3 is believed to be spoken about Alexander the Great. Then, they believe that Daniel 11.4-20 is speaking about the Seleucid and Ptolemaic kings. And then, Daniel 11.21, what's that number again? 21. 21. Daniel 11. 21 through 35 is commonly traditionally viewed as speaking about Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. And then they believe we have a break between 35 and 36, and 36 through 45 is speaking about the Antichrist. The highlighted kingdoms are the same and assumed to be the third Gentile empire in their estimation. We believe this view to be completely and categorically inaccurate. Alexander's empire is the third empire, but the Seleucid and Ptolemaic kings are distinct and serve as a transition. Say transition. Transition. That the fourth empire will rise out of and be led by the little horn or small horn of Daniel 7 and 8. The chapter divisions and pericopes reinforce a theological interpretation that is contradicted by the angelic interpretation. The translators of the Bible actually are contradicting the angelic interpretation in Daniel 12, and they should be disregarded. We are going to show you that tonight in detail. Verse 36 is often prefaced by a heading, the king who exalts himself. And this implies that the subject matter changes in verse 36 of Daniel 11. We disagree with that assessment and would suggest that verse 21 is the beginning of a dual description. Chapter 12 
is not the beginning of a end times description, as the heading and chapter break suggest. But rather, it is the explanation of chapters 10 and 12. So, now that you guys have an appreciation for where we have been up to this point, and where we intend to go for this evening, let's read Daniel chapter 11, verse 21, and we're going to go all the way through the end of the book of Daniel, all the way to the end of chapter 12, and after that, we're going to begin to expound on the verses. Linton, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's get into it. No, 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 my friend. You've stepped out of line. (laughs) Miss Jennifer is going to read 1121 through the end. Come on, you sexy grandma. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming into an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest providences feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrows of fortresses, but only for a time. With large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in battle. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at a time at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, But this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastland will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortresses and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many through, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help. And many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard things against the god of gods. He will be successful until until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined must take place. 
He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one who desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortress, a god unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortress with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasuries of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt, with the Libyans and Nubians in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him. He will set out in great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful Holy Land, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be times of distress. Such has not happened from the beginning of all nations until then. But at the time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on his bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and left hand towards heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times and a half, half time, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken. All these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As you go, go your way until the end, you will rest. And at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Oh, oh, wow. Right, Miss Jennifer. There are some very particularly difficult phrases at the end of chapter 11, but you did a fine job with them. Now that you guys have heard it, we have a slide to show you what we are suggesting in these chapters. Our suggestion 
Starting with Daniel chapter 11 and verse 2. Speaking about a Medo-Persian, the Medo-Persian kings and the second empire. Then we have the next verse. 11 verse 3. Speaking about Alexander the Great and the third empire. Then in verses 4 through 20, we have the Seleucid and Ptolemaic kings and the transitionary kingdoms being spoken about. And then starting in verse 21, somebody say verse 21. Verse 21. We begin to speak about the Antichrist and the fourth empire. These verses specifically foreshadowing as hints from Antiochus the fourth. And then verses 36 through 45 of chapter 11, speaking about the Antichrist, the fourth empire, with no historical parallels for these specific events. The chapter break between chapter 11 and chapter 12 is quite misplaced. Chapter 12 is actually an explanation of the content in chapter 11. The angelic interpretation in chapter 12 will tell us that from 11 Verse 21 forward is the end times fourth empire. We cannot wait to show you this tonight. The pericope in most Bibles above verse, uh, above verse um, 36 of chapter 11, it's also misplaced. If there should be one at all, it should be placed above chapter 11, verse 21. Now we're going to start going verse by verse. And Justin Linton, you should be especially ready to get into the scripture tonight. Why don't you read verse 21 for us? He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Wow. So much like we experienced in chapter 8, almost all Bible commentators apply this verse to who? Antiochus Epiphanes. And the description may be applicable. We would like to lay out for you how we came to the conclusion that verses 21 through 45 primarily apply to the last Gentile king in history to oppress Israel. This is the little horn of Daniel 7, or the small horn of Daniel 8, or the one who caused the abomination of desolation from Daniel chapter 9. This is how we came to our conclusion. First... It is our practice to read through the book several times, outlining the chapters. We do this without the aid of any outside source. When we, when we did, did this, it seemed to us that this verse began to flow in a description that transitioned to events beyond what we know of Antiochus Epiphanes. The description went beyond what he accomplished, just like chapter 8 had done. Then we paid careful attention to the words... He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and seized it through entry. This phrase reminded us of something. You guys see this next slide entitled False Peace and Safety. Yeah. Yeah. So coming from 1 Thessalonians 1, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, yeah, wow. destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Wow. Now with that in mind from Thessalonians, listen to Isaiah 28, verses 14 on into 19. 
This people in Jerusalem, it goes on in verse 15 and says, you boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. So verse 14 lets you know we're talking about the people of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. And they say, we have entered into a covenant with death. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. There it is. Verse 29 says, All this also comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. Wow. I hear this again in the law this time. Deuteronomy 29, 19. When such a person hears the words of this oath, he invokes a blessing on himself and therefore thinks, I will be saved. Even though I persist in going my own way. This will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. You just heard from a writings, a prophet, and a law about peace and safety in this kind of condition that is false. When the Antichrist comes into power, it will be because the people of Israel are in a false state of peace that has allowed them to trust in their alliance with men rather than the Almighty God. The setting of the time frame is described frequently in the scripture. Uh, It's one that produces laxity in those that do not love the truth. Rather than go through the hundreds of scriptures, we summarized a few on a slide for you. Okay, False peace produces laxity. If you read Matthew 24, especially 37 through 39, you'll see that's what Jesus describes in the context of the coming abomination of desolation. If you read Luke 21, 34 through 35, you'll see the same. We chose to read from Luke 17, 26 through 33, just because we thought that it displayed it well. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in a field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. So, our initial impression was that the text was beginning to describe events that we tend to associate with the end and not a mere historical occurrence. But then something happened. (laughs) We checked the commentaries, and nobody agreed with us. Of course we began to doubt. We began to wonder if we were missing something. Fortunately, we came across two sources. One was Joel Richardson, and we're thankful for that. And the other was an ancient source. I literally had crossed this off my list and said, we're just wrong. And then found out somebody else had seen the same thing that we saw. And we had not gone crazy. 
So we want to show you one of the oldest commentaries on Daniel that we have in our library, and we have hundreds of commentaries in our library. It's by St. Jerome. We want you to hear what he says. All right, let's give a little background on St. Jerome. And remember what Eric said. This is the oldest commentary on Daniel that we could find. All right, so Jerome. Jerome was given the title of Doctor Maximus Sacris Scripturis Explanatus. Yeah! And whatever that means. It means the doctor who maximizes his explanation of the sacred scripture. There we've had a tongue and an interpretation. (laughs) So that title was given to him by those that followed him in history. One scholar said of Jerome, as a Hebrew scholar and humanist, He brought the Bible closer to the Latin-speaking world. The Old Latin was a uniliterary translation from the Septuagint. Unliterary. Unliterary. That is true. The Old Latin is unliterary. And it's a translation from the Septuagint. The Vulgate was based on the Hebrew truth, as St. Jerome lovingly calls it. In 386 A.D. What year? 386. Jerome left for the east and took up residence in Bethlehem, where he continued to live until his death in 420 A.D. It was here that most of his writing was done. Now, what Jerome did is he translated the whole Bible into what we know as the Vulgate. And he translated it from original Hebrew manuscripts. Jerome also wrote commentaries on some of the books of the Bible. And we have a copy of Jerome's commentary on the book of Daniel. Do you want to know what Jerome said on the book of Daniel? Check out this next slide with us. This is Jerome on Daniel. Up to this point, the historical order has been followed. And there has been no point of controversy between Porphyry and those of our side. So Jerome here gives his opponent's argument and we chose to omit it. We fast forwarded to what he had to say about it. But those of our persuasion believe all these things are spoken prophetically of the Antichrist who is to arise in the end time. Those of our school insist also that since many of the details which we are subsequently to read and explain are appropriate to the person of Antiochus, he is to be regarded as a type. Of the Antichrist. Wow. And those things which happen to him in a preliminary way are to be completely fulfilled in the case of the Antichrist. So in all fairness, we need to tell you that it is demonstrable that early Christians who were much closer to the events of Antiochus Epiphanes and closer to the words of Jesus did at least in part see what we are going to describe to you tonight. We do need to note that Jerome believed the shift in the text was two verses later than we do, but that to us was insignificant. Let's get to the most compelling reason that we came to the conclusion that from Daniel 11, verse 21 through 45, is speaking of the end of days. It is the angelic interpretation given in chapter 12. I'm just going to interrupt for a second. 
if you like Jerome's commentary, then the angelic commentary on it are to be even better, right? What drove us to this conclusion is what the angel said. The fact that Jerome also said it just let us know we're not the only ones that have found this. And the fact that a modern interpreter and Joel Richardson found it gave us comfort that we're not the only crazy ones. Everybody else is just looking at this text wrong. So chapter 12 is clearly an explanation of chapter 11. Let's begin to look at the angelic reference to scripture. And check out this slide. So Daniel 12.1 says, There will be a time of distress such as, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Now listen to Jeremiah 30 verse 7. How awful that day will be. No, one, no other will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob. But he will be saved out of it. So both passages share three features. There is a time of unparalleled trouble or distress. The people are Daniel's people or Jacob. They will be delivered or saved out of it. When the angel is explaining the events of Daniel 11, the first thing that he does is relate them to Jeremiah 30 verse 7. And the time that we call Jacob's trouble. Do you remember that from our Jeremiah study? Yes. That period refers to the last heptad, or seven-year period, in God's redemptive plan. Let's continue reading in Isaiah. So this is coming from Isaiah 26, verse 18. We were with child. We writhed in labor. But we gave birth to the wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth, and the people of the world have not come to life. As this verse is Isaiah in uh, describing Israel's complaint that they've struggled to no purpose and nothing has come of it. They've been unable to bring salvation to the world. This calls back to mind promises from Abraham that they believe they have been unable to accomplish. The people of the world have not come to life. So Isaiah records the complaint that Israel has not brought salvation and the resurrection to mankind at large. Mm. Now look at what the angel in Daniel 12 says in this specific context. Daniel 12, 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Now this is Isaiah 26, one verse later from what you just heard. But your dead will live. Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Guys, so notice the context here. There are features, three of them specifically, that are shared between these two passages. There is a time of suffering and death and pain, and the people are Israel who are being described, but then they are delivered and resurrection is prophesied. After relating the content of Daniel chapter 11 to the time of Jacob's trouble, the very next thing the angel does is refer to Isaiah's complaint and the salvation of the Jewish people and the resurrection of the dead. When you consider that Isaiah 26.18 was not just about Israel, but about bringing salvation to the world at large, then it becomes clear that Daniel 11 and 12 are not just about Israel's salvation, but the resurrection of the dead 
for all believers. So, so far you've seen in the first two verses of chapter 12, he quotes Jeremiah 30 about a time of trouble and he quotes Isaiah 26 about the resurrection of the dead. And chapter 12 is an explanation of chapter 11. That's what drove us to look at this more deeply. We want to put some more concepts on slides for you because we kind of think if you get them visually, it will help us. Does that make sense to you? Let's look at the angelic interpretation. Daniel 12.1 and Jeremiah 37 share those same three features. There is a time of unparalleled distress. The people are Daniel's people, also referred to as Jacob, and they will be delivered out of it. Then, in Daniel 12, 2, when you pair it with Isaiah 26, 19, there is a time of suffering and death. The people are Israel, and they will be resurrected. I find it amazing that an angel is quoting the prophets, but that's exactly what he's doing, and the wording is even clearer in Hebrew. The angelic interpretation of Daniel 11 in Daniel 12 would go like this. One The time of unparalleled distress will, for the Jewish people, result in the resurrection of the dead and the redemption of the world. Come on. How could this be anything other than the end times? How could this be anything other than when Jesus returns? And it's going to get even sharper and more clear. It's not just us or Jerome that says Daniel 11 is about the future in the final seven years. The angel is saying it. In case you got confused in all of that, let's continue. I'm going to start with Daniel 12.4 and then hand it to my friend Justin. When? When is all of this going to happen? All we've done is read the first few verses of Daniel 12 and tell you what he's referring to. Now here in Daniel 12.4, but you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll Until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Ask yourself, is it reasonable to think that this refers to events in 164 B.C.? Is it reasonable to think that this event refers to something that happened in 70 A.D.? Before you answer that question, and I appreciate some of you were bold enough to commit to it, Let's continue in Daniel 12 to verses 6 and 7. And this ought to make it very clear. All right, so Daniel 12, verse 6. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? Mm. Verse 7, the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. Wow. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. So pay attention to that. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken. And he specifically references three and a half years. Now pair that with the slide we've already created to you in the top left corner. The 70 weeks of years, the 490 years, the heptad A and B. Then we have the split, and heptad C is the final seven years in human history. And we have learned about those final seven years, that in that time period, 
The Antichrist will confirm a covenant with the people. In the middle, which is 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, he will break it. He will put an end to sacrifice and offering. He will set up an abomination that causes desolation. The end decreed will be poured out on him. Just in case you think that that might be a reference to something in the past, notice the green box on the screen. Because Revelation points it forward. Revelation 11, 2 and 3 lists 42 months as 1260 days. That is 42 months times 30 days equals 1260. Revelation 12, 6 also lists the same 1260 days, which is 42 months. And Revelation 13, 5 also mentions the same 42 months. Wow. So the book of Revelation is putting this. As a future event. So the three and a half year period that the angel says these things refer to is demonstrably. It's not a question. It's not an if. It is demonstrably in the final seven years of God's redemptive plan for Israel and the whole earth. That means that Daniel 11 is telling the same story as Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. It also means that Daniel 11 is giving us the same story as Daniel 8 and Daniel 9 did, yeah. but with even more detail. Maybe you guys are still not convinced. I don't know. Got that look on your face, right? Let's keep going. We've got another slide for you from Daniel 12, verses 8 through 13. I heard, but I did not understand. Can you relate to that? Yeah. yeah. I have a good spot to be in, right? Yeah. So I asked my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest and then, at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Look at the bottom three points on this slide. The angelic interpretation of Daniel 10 and 11 takes us up to the end of the days. So where in Daniel 11 do we transition from speaking of historical events to future events? I'm going to ask that question one more time because that's where we're going. And I want you to hear it again. Where in Daniel 11 do we transition from speaking of historical events to events that will come in the future? Not surprisingly, the angel gives us the answer. Oh, amen. So the answer is found by comparing the angel's interpretation with the verses in chapter 11. We say that because the angel is obviously quoting chapter 11, and here's what we mean. We have a slide for you. Daniel 12.10 says, Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined. But the wicked will come, continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand. 
but those who are wise will understand. Now listen to Daniel 11, 33-35. Those who are wise will instruct many. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end. Wow. So Daniel 12, 10 and Daniel 11, 33-35 are the same event. Are you guys catching that? They are both... They both are the purification of the wise. They are both in context of the end. The angel places them both in the context of the resurrection of the dead. So if Daniel 12.10 is at the end of time, and Daniel 11.33-35 is the same event, that certainly means that from the la- at least Daniel 11.33, we are talking about the future and not a historical fulfillment. We've already backed up three verses from where everybody puts it, just by what the angel said. So we just looked at verse 33 as the angel quoted it. But that's not all that the angel said. Hmm. Take a look at this next slide as we keep reading, and we're going to establish where our transition is. Because it's going to keep backing up. (laughs) Daniel 12, verse 11 this time. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now Daniel 11:31. we just backed up a couple of verses. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Hmm. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Here it is. Guys, so between Daniel 12, 11 and Daniel eleven thirty one, you can see the placement of these events as at the end. The daily sacrifice is stopped in both passages. The abomination that causes desolation is set up in both passages. We have already established that these are precursors to the resurrection of the dead, as it was quoted. So let's ask, who's the subject of Daniel 11, verse 31 then? Hmm. Where in Daniel 11... Do we see the person's description begin? The one that we refer to as the Antichrist. Answering those questions will help us to see the transition from historical to partial and then entirely future fulfillment. When you're thinking about this, and I know we've thrown a lot at you, I just want to recap for you. If Daniel 12 tells us Daniel 11.33 is at the end, and then Daniel 12 tells us that 1131 is at the end and literally quotes it almost word for word, but in reverse order. Then all you have to do is say, when do we start talking about the person in 31 that is the subject of it? Does that make sense? I'm going to show you that. We clearly are not going to read the small print on this next slide, but we just want to show it to you. Verse 31 is the left arrow at the bottom of the screen. That's the person uh, that the angel places at the end. Well, his description begins in verse 21. And there is no transition between 21 and 31, which is why when we read it without pericopes, without chapters, we circled this and said, this is where we begin speaking of the end. And then we checked, and Jerome thought the same thing with the exception of two verses. Uh, Clearly, we're going to have to move on to our other verses tonight, but we wanted you to know how we came to the conclusion before we give it to you, and we're going to publish the notes online so that you can look at it. 
Here is a slide that is a summary of what we're saying, okay? That, that way this will help you. All right, so Daniel 11.2 is the Medo-Persian kings, the second empire. Daniel 11.3 is Alexander the Great, the third empire. Daniel 11.4 through 20 are the Seleucid and Ptolemaic kings. And we believe this is the transitionary kingdoms, not the third empire, transitionary kingdoms. What we have just shown you is that we know from the text that Daniel 11.21 transitions to the Antichrist, the fourth empire. And then it goes on to verse 30. And this is foreshadowings as hints from Antiochus IV. And that carries all the way into Daniel 11.36 through 45. Real quick, there are many people that say, oh yeah, there's, there's dual fulfillments and stuff. They're missing something. The angel himself says it is about the Antichrist, not about Antiochus Epiphanes. He does that by the comparison of the verses. So it is wrong to say this is primarily Antiochus and may foreshadow the Antichrist. It's actually the exact opposite. And then just to add to the hypocrisy, which I've participated in, we need to be humble and honest about this, they place a pericope at 36 to tell you that is where the transition is. That is not where the angel placed it. The angel said that the events of 31 through 35 are the end of time. And the person in verses 31 through 35 begins being described in verse 21. By the way, no one that I know of draws parallels in history from 36 to 45. That's what this slide was meant to, to show you. So from 21 to 30, from 36 to 45, we're talking about the Antichrist. The only difference there is in 21 to 30, we might see some foreshadowings in Antiochus Epiphanes. In 36 through 45, these are, no, these are historical events that have not happened and there are no, are no parallels in history to these things. So we're describing things that can only happen in the future. We want you to know that the early Christian community believed that Daniel 11.21 forward was a description of the Antichrist as demonstrated by Jerome. Of course, they weren't trying to work a rapture into it or their particular seminary's point of view. And note that this is the earliest Christian community. It's pretty fascinating. Now, the angelic interpretation places Daniel 11.31 in the time immediately preceding the resurrection of the dead. The description of the person who performs the actions described in Daniel 11.31 begins in 11.21, it is appropriate to view Daniel 11.21 through 45 as a prophecy about the Antichrist. You guys will appreciate that as we move forward. So to retrieve some continuity, let's just begin in verse 21 again. Now that you know what you know. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when his people feel secure. And he will seize it through entry. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully. And with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. Wow. 
So we could go into the ways that everybody seems to think that Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, fulfilled details of this description. But let's face it, that is what all of your study notes in your Bibles already say. So we have tried to make clear, we and apparently many early Christians believe that these verses point primarily to the Antichrist. Let's just mention that we find it implausible that Antiochus Epiphanes achieved what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. That didn't happen in history. Truthfully, we don't want to get into proving all the ways that we do not think Antiochus fits the bill. Or we would be wasting time discussing errors rather than discussing the truth with you guys. And we know that the truth is what you're after tonight. The angelic interpretation lets us know these things point to the Antichrist. Peyton is going to help us with a few things that we should look for in the verses that we just read regarding the Antichrist, verses 21 through 24. Okay, I just want to say these slides are very, very good. Yeah. So this is the curriculum vitae of Antichrist from Daniel 11, 21 through 24. The Antichrist should be a contemptible person who is not considered royal. He will invade Israel when the people feel secure. secure. Yeah. He will seize Israel through intrigue. That word for intrigue is H2519. And our Hebrew scholar is going to help me pronounce it. Halak lakot. Which means flatteries, <laughs> slipperiness, or hypocrisy. Halak <laughs> lakot. Yeah. Uh, that is more than just uh, overwhelming military power. When a battle does ensue, the Antichrist will sweep away an overwhelming army. When the battle ensues, a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. Little P, prince. The rise of the Antichrist will start relatively small with only a few people, much like the description in Daniel 7 of a little horn or in Daniel 8 of a small horn. The rise of the Antichrist will involve a deceitful agreement that allows his rise to power. The accomplishments of the Antichrist will exceed his fathers and forefathers, and the accomplishments target wealthy provinces, which happens to fit the Muslim motif pretty well. So guys, as we pick up in verse 25, keep listening. We're building a curriculum vitae of the Antichrist. Pick up in 25 for me, brother. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. So again, we are not going to waste time trying to correlate these events with past history. There may well be very many parallels, but the angelic interpretation tells us these things relate to the coming Antichrist at the time of the end. Yeah. So this next slide will continue his resume. Thanks, the Antichrist will obtain a large army and be focused on defeating the king of the south, which is Egypt. The king of the south, Egypt, will not be able to stand against the Antichrist because of the plots that were devised against him from those who share his food. Mm. 
the Antichrist and the King of the South, Egypt, are both liars bent on evil. But none of their interactions will prevent God's determined outcome of these events. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 28. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will, he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So we're not going to get into the note that most of your study Bibles will have in verse 30 and the assertion that the ships of the western coastlands are Rome. They may be or they may not be. But the Hebrew here is the word H3794 Kitty. And it probably refers to the great grandson of Noah by Japhon or their tribe listed in Genesis 10, which is, by the way, Western Turkey, not Rome. If the Antichrist were Roman, why would the ships of Rome be threatening? Antiochus Epiphanes was reportedly threatened by Rome. But the text never says Rome. It says Kitty. Again, let's just assume that the angel was correct in his interpretation and continue the curriculum vitae of the Antichrist. What we've learned from Daniel 11, 28 through 30 is the Antichrist is referred to as the king of the north, which has dramatic implications if you read Ezekiel 38 and 39. I'd love to teach on it, but we don't have time. The Antichrist has a heart motivation to be against the Holy Covenant. The Antichrist will take action against the Holy Covenant, but be from a country outside of Israel. That's that's clear from the text. The Antichrist will engage in more battles, repetitive battles, with the king of the south or the king of Egypt, but not be able to prevail initially. The Antichrist will vent his fury against the Holy Covenant while also showing favor to anyone that is interested in apostasy. Yeah? Yeah. Why don't we go ahead and then say, when you read the resume of the Antichrist, it starts to shed light on why a verse like 1 John 2, 18 through 19 associates the spirit of the Antichrist with all apostasy through the ages. Perhaps John was just reading Daniel, and that's where he got this from. Mr. Linton, will you read verse 31 and 32? And remember, 31 and 32 are squarely within what the angel said was the end of days. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple portion and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. All right, so because you're learning to read Daniel 11 in the light of angelic interpretation, let's take a look at this slide. Remember, Daniel 12:11 says, From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Daniel 11:31, which we just read, says, His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. 
Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. So both Daniel 12.11 and Daniel 11.31 are the same event and are at the end time. The daily sacrifice is stopped. The abomination that causes desolation is set up. So there is no conceivable way to read Daniel 11.31 as a past historical event. And since we know for sure that these events are not interpreted by the angel to have anything to do with Antiochus Epiphanes, let's add them to the resume of the Antichrist. Notice that there's a couple bullet points. Go back on that slide that Justin missed. The angel's interpretation of the event when the angel is describing Daniel 11.31 in Daniel 12.11, notice the verses before it. Because the verse before it, Daniel 12.9, says time of the end. The verse, two verses after it, 12.13, says time of the end. There's no way that you could make this a historical event based on the angel's interpretation. So we're right in putting this on the Antichrist resume. So as we're building this resume of the Antichrist, notice the things we add. The Antichrist's armies will desecrate the temple complex. The Antichrist will abolish the daily sacrifice that will obviously be ongoing during his initial rise to power, which means there has to be a temple. The Antichrist and his forces will set up the abomination that causes desolation. And the Antichrist will use flattery to corrupt those already in violation of the covenant. Lastly, the Antichrist will be resisted by those who know their God. Let's keep reading. Those who are wise will instruct many. Though for a time they will fall by the sword, or be burned, or captured, or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the end, until the time of the end. For it will still come at the appointed time. Whoa! Did you guys notice that even the wise have many that join them who are not sincere? The spirit of the Antichrist is a spirit of apostasy. The Apostle John, he knew this from reading the curriculum vitae of the Antichrist. This in part explains why John could write the following in 1 John 2, 18-19, which we mentioned earlier. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Hear that spirit of apostasy? For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So now let's look at how the angel interpreted Daniel 11, 33-35 again. So this is reading Daniel 11 in light of angelic interpretation. Daniel 12.10, many will be purified, made spotless, and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. Daniel 11.33-35, those who are wise will instruct many. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end. So these two passages are the same event. 
They both are the purification of the wise. They are both in context of what? The, the end. end. The angel places them both in context of the resurrection of the dead. You'll remember that Daniel 12.9 says the time of the end. And Daniel 12.13 says till the end and end of days. The angel could not have made the context any clearer for us. So since we know for certain that these verses are about the Antichrist, let's continue our curriculum vitae for the small horn with the blasphemous mouth or the Antichrist. So guys, this next slide. The Antichrist will facilitate murder by sword of the wise. The Antichrist will burn the wise. The Antichrist will imprison the wise. Mm -hmm. And then this next one is worth <coughs> noting and taking consideration about. The Antichrist will plunder the wise. You can see on the slide here, we have a definition of the word plunder for you. Valuables taken by violence, especially in war, whether people or goods. I don't think we need to explain the ways that this matches up with a religion like ISIS, Islam in its being. They don't burn people or use swords on people, do they? Or trade human captives. The Antichrist persecution of the wise will actually serve to refine, purify, and make the wise spotless. Yeah. He's being used. The Antichrist will not be able to stop the appointed time of the end. It is coming when God determined it. The so saints, we've already mentioned this several times, but if your Bible has a subject heading here that looks a little bit like this next slide. This is from one of our Bibles, and if you can't see it because it's kind of small, it says, The King Who Exalts Himself. As you can see, this is titled, Presumptuous Pericope. This is the point at which virtually no commentator, no commentator claims that we are speaking of historical events, and they have to admit at this point that it is a future event being described. If there has to be a pericope, it should have been in verse 21 where we picked up describing the man who would do these things. The unfortunate side effect of this kind of subject heading is that it obscures the fact that we've been talking about the Antichrist since verse 21. The way that we avoided this error was simply by reading through the text with the illusion of the first time, and we utilized an electronic version of Daniel where we could remove everything that is not in the scroll of Daniel. So no verses, no chapter headings, no pericopes of any kind. And it's what occurred to us first. We didn't doubt it until we read other commentators who made the pericopes. We're going to pick up in verse 36, and we're going to read the uh, passage and then continue the curricula vitae. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is complete, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but he will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers, he will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. 
So continuing the curriculum vitae of the Antichrist, we see that the Antichrist will operate entirely out of his own satanic self-will. He will exalt himself above all known gods, known to Daniel. The Antichrist will be blasphemous. The Antichrist will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. The Antichrist will not regard the gods of his fathers. The Antichrist will not regard the one desired by women. The Antichrist will be exalted above all in his own estimation. The Antichrist, listen to this, will honor a god of fortresses. Will honor. Possibly an interesting description of Islam. The Antichrist will honor a god unknown to his fathers, his ancestors. The Antichrist will be aided by a foreign god and honor those who acknowledge him. And the Antichrist will reward his followers with people and land at a price. Let's pick up in verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and will sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. Wow. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of the gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and the Nubians in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet, he will come to his end, with no, and no one will help him. Man, on this next slide, we're going to continue this curriculum vitae of the Antichrist in the verses that we just read, 40 through 45. The Antichrist will be attacked by the king of the south, from Egypt. The Antichrist will embark on a victorious regional military campaign. The Antichrist will control many countries, including Israel. Pay attention to this next one. The Antichrist will not be able to control Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon. The Antichrist will eventually conquer and plunder Egypt, the Libyans, and the Nubians. The Antichrist will not completely control the East and North but will annihilate many. Did you hear the scripture said news from the east and north startles him? The Antichrist will have a residence between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. And the Antichrist will come to his end and no one will help him. So, guys, we just identified 48 attributes or activities of the Antichrist. What he is going to do. The sad part about this is that 29 out of those 48 are in a section of the text that almost all modern commentators don't even attribute to the Antichrist. This raises the question, what else are we missing from repeating the echo chamber of errors that have been made in their interpretations? For that reason, we want to make another comment about chapter divisions. So we showed you the presumptuous pericopes, Now here are careless chapter divisions and titles. 
Do you notice that it says end times in chapter 12? There should not be a chapter division here. We just want to make that clear. It should not be there. The chapter title is it's misleading for anyone reading the text. Because you would think that this is the point at which we're talking about now, end times. We, we, we now, end even though the angel has already declared it was earlier. We've yeah. been talking about it already. The, the right title for this should be, if they were going to put one, is The Angelic Interpretation. Wow. Guys, so with that in mind, let's review a few conclusions together that you should have already come to based upon what we've presented. See this next slide? So we have already made the case that what we are about to read is an interpretation of the events relayed in Daniel 11. The angel specifically references Daniel 11.31, quoting it almost verbatim, and Daniel 11.33-35, and places them at the end of time. We've already shown you that the angel quotes from Jeremiah 30, verse 7, regarding the time of Jacob's trouble, and from Isaiah 26, verse 18 through 19, regarding the resurrection of the dead. So the familiar slide at the top left-hand corner are 70 weeks of years, meaning a total of 490 years. We've already showed you that Heptad A and Heptad B take you all the way up to the triumphal entry. Then Heptad C is spoken about a specific final seven-year time frame when things will be accomplished. Those things were that an antichrist would confirm a covenant. In the middle of that covenant, 42 months, 1260 days, 3.5 years, halfway any way you want to put it, he will break the covenant he set up. He will put an end to sacrifice and offering. He will set up an abomination that causes desolation. But you just heard the description of it happening. The end decreed will be poured out on him after these events. So when this chapter, Daniel 12, opens with the phrase, at that time, we are talking clearly, referencing the last seven years of God's redemptive plan. Yes. This phrase that has been coming up, this means that the ultimate aim of Daniel 11 was always the final heptad of human history. And Daniel 12 is an angelic explanation of the content within Daniel 11. Now, I have the benefit of sitting very close or standing very close to Miss Jennifer. And uh, I can see by the look on her face, this has been a lot to process. So we want you to understand that this pattern has been repeating in the book of Daniel since chapter 7. It's how I identified it. Because Adonai wants us to understand it. So let's go over a slide on the pattern so that you get it. Revelation is always given, and then it's followed by an interpretation. If you go back and look at Daniel 7, 1 through 14, it was a revelation. And then Daniel 7, 15 through 28 was the angelic interpretation of that revelation. Then when you move to Daniel 8, Daniel 8 was a visionary revelation. And then Daniel 9 was a message of angelic interpretation of what he had seen. Then go to Daniel 10, 9, I'm I'm sorry, 10 and 11, and they are a revelation. And then Daniel 12 is an angelic interpretation. Now, consider the subject matter of what we just did. The subject matter of Daniel 7 is the four Gentile beastly empires with an emphasis on the last empire and the little horn that leads it. The subject matter of Daniel 8 and 9 
is the four Gentile beastly empires with an emphasis on the last empire and the small horn that leads it. Then the subject matter of Daniel 10, 11, and 12 is the four Gentile beastly empires with an emphasis on the last empire, and it gives you the curricula vitae of the one who leads it. All of this was to bring us to the culmination of the ages in the 70th week, the redemption of Israel. When you really engage with the continuity of Daniel, it becomes very clear how the apostles wrote some of the things that they did. The book itself is organized in an effort to point to three specific elements that are one climactic conclusion. Can I walk through that with you for a second? You remember the slide that we started or near the beginning, the organization of the book of Daniel? Those life events in the blue box? They're all about what is true, genetic, and spiritual Israel. Everything in the red box is about the redemption of Israel. And do you see how we angled them so that they kind of made an arrow? They point to the bar Enosh in chapter 7. So the first conclusion that you would come to is that there is and always has been a true genetic and spiritual Israel. The second conclusion that you would come to is that Adonai is always focused on the redemption of his people, Israel. The third conclusion and the focal point of all of these messages is the Barinash or the Messiah who will bring about the redemption of the true genetic and spiritual Israel. Maybe that is why Paul and Barnabas encouraged the churches in the Seleucid cities, Seleucid cities, of Antioch, Lystra, and Iconium by encouraging them to remain true to the faith saying, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Does that make sense to y'all? Let's work through chapter 12. We've already done it for you, but we're going to continue to do it, and I think you'll pick up some new things. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. All right, since we have already drawn interpretive parallels with Jeremiah 30, verse 7, and Isaiah 26, verses 18 through 19, as well as shown you the symmetry between these verses and Daniel 11, let's take a moment and talk about Michael for a bit. We want to show you this slide. Again, Michael, or Michael, means who is as or like God. So not only is the definition of Michael one who is as or like God, But his appearances in the holy text are very instructive. We're going to give you his resume. Every reference to him in the Bible by name. The first one being Daniel 10, verse 13. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, 
one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. So in this passage, when a message was being prevented from reaching Daniel because of celestial opposition, Michael's arrival on the scene changed that situation. Something about him being there shifted the situation. Our next reference to Michael happened in the same chapter, Daniel 10, but in verses 20 and 21. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. Here we learn that Michael is the celestial prince that is assigned to the welfare of Israel. Michael is presented in these verses as being in contention with the celestial powers controlling the Gentile beastly empires of Persia and Greece. Okay, so let's continue this in Jude 9. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. The Lord's own brother called Michael the archangel, meaning the angel of high position. Michael is viewed as being in contention with Satan himself in this passage over the body of a faithful Jew. What was he in contention about? The body of a faithful Jew. So listen to Revelation 12, 7 through 9 in light of that. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient servant called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. In the final book in our canon, Michael is presented as having angels under his authority in waging war against Satan himself. The result of this battle was the expulsion of Satan from the heavens. So let's look at Daniel 12, 1 again. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. Somebody say, will arise. Will arise. There will be a time of distress such has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, the time of his arising, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. See, it seems to us that there is a time of unparalleled distress being described for God's people. Is that fair? And then Michael will arise. It seems as if Michael has been seated or sidelined or taken out of the way so that the time of trouble could proceed. When Michael arises, it brings an end to the matter and deliverance begins followed by the resurrection of the dead. Now, in light of that, it might be a good time to hear the Apostle Paul as he reflects on Daniel 11 and Daniel 12. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12. through 12. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. 
You see, Paul, Silas, and Timothy wanted everyone to know that the basic tenets of preterism are completely wrong. The final heptad has not yet happened. And when it does, it will be beyond any dispute. Pick up in verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. So Jesus' coming will not occur until after the rebellion that causes desolation of Daniel 8 and the abomination that causes desolation of Daniel 9 and 11. This is why Paul goes on to say in verse 4, He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Here Paul is clearly quoting from the curriculum vitae of the Antichrist, as Daniel 8, 9, and 11 make so clear. Listen to verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? (laughs) Do you really think Paul just told them these things? Or do you think uh, he read these things to them from Daniel and made the scriptures clear in his explanation? (laughs) Let's go to 6. And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. Come on now, Michael. We have heard some truly bizarre interpretations of this verse, especially lately. But considering the description in the Bible of Michael and the clear context of Daniel and Paul's address to the Thessalonians, we cannot see this restrainer as anyone other than Michael himself. We put it on a slide for you. Let's take another look at Michael. So, when a message was being prevented from reaching Daniel because of celestial opposition, Michael's arrival on the scene changed the situation. You can find that in Daniel 10.13. Michael is the celestial prince that is assigned to the welfare of Israel. Michael is presented in these verses as being in contention with the celestial powers controlling the Gentile beastly empires of Persia and Greece, Daniel 10, 20-21. The Lord's own brother called Michael the archangel, meaning the angel of high position. Michael is viewed as being in contention with Satan himself over the body of a faithful Jew. We read that in June 9. Michael is presented as having angels under his authority and waging war against Satan from Revelation 12, 7-9. A time of unparalleled distress is being described for God's people, and then Michael will arise. As if Michael had been seated or sidelined or taken out of the way so that the time of trouble could proceed. We read that in Daniel 12, 1. Notice the highlighted portion here. God is so sovereign... That he has Michael step back to allow the fourth empire to be able to arise or to rise and oppress God's people at the appointed time. When Adonai has had enough, Michael will arise. Jesus returns with the shout of the archangel. Of the The archangel. The archangel. And only one of them is named in the Bible. As when Michael stands down, is sidelined or steps back, 
This is what happens in verse 8 of Thessalonians. And then, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The Antichrist will be impossible, impossible for a believer reading Daniel and the Newer Testament to miss. But if you do, it will become clear when you see Michael shouting, Jesus returned to destroy the Antichrist and the dead rising all around you. Yeah, come on. Now, Amen. For more on that subject, you can read 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 in your own time. But for now, we're going to continue in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Again, there have been more superfluous interpretations of this passage than we have time to deal with. So we're going to give you the correct one. Let us just suggest that Paul is teaching from the book of Daniel to the Thessalonians and is referencing a delusion associated with the box on this slide. What's the delusion? That the people of Israel will allow a covenant to be made with them and the Antichrist. In the middle of that covenant, 42 months in, three and a half years in, he breaks it. He puts an end to the sacrifice and offering. He sets up an abomination that causes desolation until the end of the period where Michael shouts, Jesus returns, and the resurrection of the dead occurs. That is what Paul is talking about, and he could only know it from the book of Daniel. Let's pick up in Daniel 12, 2, because we're just about out of time. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. All right, so the doctrine of the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked are clearly displayed in these verses. The state of the person is either everlasting life or everlasting shame and contempt. If we go any further down that train of thought, we will be here all night discussing everlasting things. So let's keep on moving in verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others. One on this side of the bank of the river. Ooh, one on this side of the bank, okay. And one on the opposite bank. One on the opposite bank, okay. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river. Sounds like a third guy. A third above the waters of the river. We got three guys here. How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? Oh, man. We really wanted to develop this picture for you tonight, but I think that we are out of time. So, we're going to suggest to you that you might want to compare some passages in Genesis 18, namely verses 1 and 2, and verses... 16 through 19, because this imagery is so profound 
And it may communicate something to you about the nature of a triune representation of Adonai, of God himself. Both passages, when you compare them, contain three unnamed angelic figures. And we'll leave it at that. Go ahead, Peyton. Or Linton, verse 7. The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times and a half, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has finally been broken, all these things will be completed. So we are definitely short on time at this point. But it seems that a major facet of Daniel 7, 8, 9, and 11 is the breaking of the power of the holy people. This produces a refining, purification, that they are made spotless in. Come on. As you know, Jesus is returning for what? A spotless bride. Spotless bride. Deeper consideration of this subject should include that Antiochus Epiphanes did not accomplish this in a way that made Israel spotless. That's true. Titus did not accomplish this in a way that made Israel spotless. Very true. World War II and the Holocaust did not accomplish this in a way that made Israel spotless. Definitely true. The time of unparalleled crisis that comes upon Israel and those grafted into her redemptive plan will produce a people that are like Messiah, loving not their lives so much to shrink back from death. Somebody say amen to that. Verse 8. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will be what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way then, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. As the four Gentile beastly empires... They're allowed to increase in strength while they decrease in value for a very specific purpose. Gold all the way down to iron. Mm. The fourth empire to rise will be an unparalleled expression of satanic hatred for God's people. Jesus himself said that you are blessed when people revile and persecute you. The purpose of God allowing all of this is to make his people pure spotless, and refined, so that they are proven to be His upon His coming. That is the way that it worked in the life of Messiah. And that is the way that it works in the body of Messiah. The days that are being described will conform the body of Messiah to the image of our great King. Nothing could be more important than your love of the truth in the Word of God. He has told us in advance so that we may exhibit patient endurance. I mean the refining days that are ahead of us. Just in case you missed the triggering event in every other chapter, we're going to it here one last time in this very next verse. So pay attention. Brother Linton, verse 11. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits and reaches waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest. Then at the end of the days, 
you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. My, my, my. We have theories about the 2300 evenings and mornings in Daniel 8. We have theories about the difference between 1260 days and 1290 days mentioned here. We have theories about the one who reaches the end of the 1335 days mentioned here. You know what we don't have? We don't have enough time tonight. We've just covered 12 two-hour sessions on the book of Daniel. That represents way over 300 hours of putting notes together for us, not to mention the books and things that we have read accompanying it. We're going to reflect next Tuesday night on the book of Daniel. We're going to give you pastoral insights and what we personally took away from it, as well as connect some of these themes again. Perhaps we'll be able to get into these kind of enigmatic subjects on that night. I'm not sure. Tonight, we want to suggest to you something that we think is profound. It comes from Daniel 12.3. Daniel 12.3 does not read like this. Those who believe the right things will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who attend church and lead many others to that church will shine like the stars forever and ever. That is not what the text says. The text actually says, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness, Come on. like the stars forever and ever. At two hours and five minutes, we're going to turn this meeting over to the pastors. But we wanted to exhort you that faith displayed in your actions and a life that is worth following might be the only certificate of authenticity that any believer ever actually possesses. And that without a certificate of authenticity demonstrated from your faith in action and leading other men to righteousness, you may not be assured of the resurrection of the righteous. Stand to your feet with us tonight. Beth, would you put up James 3.13? What a special, special time that we're in as a church. You're being given actual bread from heaven. You're being given it, served up in the most beautiful, the most eloquent, and the most practical of ways. As Pastor was speaking there right at the end, I was moved by thinking of James 3.13. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Anybody in this room want to be wise and understanding? Yes. Yeah. Then we must show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from supernatural, faith-based, word-driven kind of wisdom. A humility that says, hey, we are hearing what our pastors are giving to us. And the truth is, is that kind of humility should make us want to go and dig in and make sure that we are getting what is being provided to us. That we're not presuming that we already know. I think I heard them say that many, many times tonight and over the previous weeks of things 
that we haven't gotten right collectively, that we are learning and that God is bringing to our attention. The wise and understanding are supposed to show it by our actual good deeds, our trust, grounded obedience in the Lord that will come out in everything that we do. I can assure you that we're not going to be held less accountable after hearing things like we did tonight. That it has to come from humility that comes from true wisdom that's given from the heavens. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that has enriched us with the treasure of knowing you. Lord, your word that has gone down into the depths of our soul and given us the honor to be refined with your people. Given us the joy of becoming pure, spotless, and refined that you may present us to your Son as radiant and without blemish. Lord, we thank you for this congregation that hungers and thirsts for your word. May we continue to seek out the depths of this word, of Daniel, and be able to reciprocate and give what the revelation is that we receive from it. We thank you for putting this word on our lips and empowering us to carry it out in our deeds. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Amen.